So happy Father's Day, and um, let's now go to the book of Ruth. And that, that seems kind of odd, to go to the book of Ruth on Father's Day, but hey, that's just how it worked out. Ruth chapter 1, let me begin reading in verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpah, the name of the other was Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Chilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Let's pray together. Our great God, we thank you that you reign over our lives. Your glory is the very reason for which you made us, that we might declare it, that we might be enfolded in it, that we might find life in it, and yet we turn our backs on you and we seek glory for ourselves. We drown in self-pity. We drown in entitlement. We drown in anger. And Father, we need you. We need the message of Ruth because we too need a Redeemer. We too need the hope of one who is coming to save us from the turmoil and the death and the destruction of life. And we need your divine strength to be men and women and children of faith in a world that does not believe. We need strength, O oh God, to love in the face of hate, in the face of death, in the face of oppression and injustice, we need you to give us the power to have hearts that are sensitive and soft to the gospel and are willing to do the hard things and the hard work of love. So, Father, I pray that you would come now by your Spirit. I need you this morning. Father, I need your wisdom and I need your words. The sermon is written, but I know this is not complete. So would you complete it through me, O oh God? Bring your word to us, for we wait, and we desperately need it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. A few weeks ago, Rachel and uh, myself and um, Amy Catherine, our uh, youngest daughter, and Tom, her husband, went to Wyoming. And uh, for a day, we went over to Yellowstone Park. And I don't know how many of you have been to Yellowstone. How, how many folks have been to Yellowstone in this room? All right. You know. I mean, I lived in Colorado for five years, and I wasn't that excited. I was thinking, yeah, Yellowstone, it won't be a big deal. It blew me away. Absolutely blew me away. And it has all these um, thermal anomalies uh, in the park. And uh, I'll give you a little um, lesson here that... Uh, the, the Earth's crust at, in an average spot on the Earth is about 90 miles thick. But under Yellowstone, it's about 40 miles thick. 
And so under the crust is this uh, magma layer or uh, this molten rock that is uh, heated several hundred degrees. And, and so because it is thinner, the crust of the earth is thinner under Yellowstone, uh, there are like 10,000 thermal anomalies just coming up all over the place. And uh, here, take a look. I, I think I've got a video of one that I actually um, took. This is called a mud pool. And it's just bubbling up mud in, in a field. Um, and there's a sign that says, do not step on that dirt or your, your, the bottom of your feet will burn, your shoes will melt. Um, and so you've got this layer of, of hotness, of warmth, that is, is under just under the earth. Now what in the world, how am I going to pull that into the book of Ruth? Well, here it is. Uh, something that I absolutely love being on a preaching team with Chris, is um, I have something with him that I've never had, and that is I get to take several weeks to get ready and focus on, um, you know, the next series. Uh, Chris has been preaching since, like, the end of April. I hadn't preached since the end of April. So I've been able to live in the book of Ruth, and, um, and it's been amazing, and I have fallen in love with Ruth. She is a fierce, fierce woman, but she's also just a fierce, fierce person. I've come to the conclusion that there are no men that can hold a candle to the fierceness of Ruth. She is a social outcast as a Moabite woman in Bethlehem when she moves there. She is um, a childless widow, with every right to curse God, with, with every right to be bitter and, 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 and to drown in self-pity and to think that life and the world owes her something. And yet she attaches herself to her bitter mother-in-law, Naomi, and she loves her in a way that really uh, is really held only for a woman or a wife for a husband. She, she enters this covenant. She says, hey, where you go, I will go. Your God will be my God, and, and where you die, I will die. Now, that, that's covenant kind of language. That's, that's husband-wife kind of language, and yet she says, no, I'm going to love you in the purest way. And then she goes, and she goes to Bethlehem, and she works. She's a woman working in a man's world. <laughs> and she outworks all of the men. And she outloves all of God's people. And at the end of the story, we see that she gains the respect of not just Boaz, but the whole city. This Moabite woman, Moabite, uh, the Moabites, as we're going to see, were enemies of God's people. And yet this Moabite woman, who becomes a believer, becomes the epitome of faith. So much so that she is mentioned in Matthew 1.1 as a direct heir, really a mother of Jesus the Messiah. This woman is amazing. And what I love about Ruth is that she brings, she heals Naomi with fierce love. And she heals God's people and the world around her with fierce love. So here's the connection. God has created His church and redeemed us His church to be in the world but not of the world. In other words, we're to be this this layer 
under the surface that is always bubbling up. (laughs) We're to be in the world bubbling up love when everyone expects us to exhibit hate. We are to be in this world seeing things that others don't see, living in ways that others don't live. Not in a splashy way, but in a very subtle way, changing the world and changing society by how we self-sacrifice and love those around us, even and especially our enemies and those that spitefully use us. Dear friends, this is a message we need to hear today. Because I believe that what Memphis needs is not more criticism. It's not more judgment. But it's love. It's self-sacrificing bold love from His church. We're to be a community of love. You see the power of it. I've been watching it in Charleston. I don't know if you've heard it, but if you haven't, you need to Google it. You need to find it. You need to listen to those family members that were there to testify and to speak and to face the one who killed their loved ones in the church. Time and time again, you heard them say, God has forgiven me, and I must forgive you, and I love you. You've taken everything from me, but I still love you. You saw the the governor of South Carolina break down and cry. You saw the chief of police saying, this is the face of evil. You saw people loving, and it's diffusing so much, not all. But the reason Charleston has not escalated into Ferguson and into other examples is because there is love going on from God's people. And dear friends, that's what the world needs. And that's what we must become. So without delay, I want us to jump in the car and we're going to take a road trip. It's summer. Aren't we supposed to get it, take a road trip? We're going to get in the car. And we're going to get in the car with Elimelech and, and Naomi and their two sons first. And uh, we're going to drop off some along the way. And we're going to pick up some along the way. We're going to uh, see Ruth and Orpah and eventually Boaz. And we're going to lose Elimelech and the two boys. Uh, But we're going to take a road trip. And the first thing I want us to see this morning is this whole reality of the first five verses of Ruth that that teach us trouble is real and certain for God's people. Trouble is real and certain for God's people. I wanted to bypass this. I wanted to gloss over this. I wanted to slide. I just wanted to get through this, and yet I just couldn't. Because you need the, when you take a road trip, um, it, it's the dad's responsibility to make sure that the car is packed right. And I know we get impatient. Come on, Dad. Come on. Really? You know? Does it all have to be exactly right? Just get the junk in there. And yet if you do that, if you listen to everybody around you, then you get there and you've forgotten something. So there's no good that comes from hurrying on the front end of a road trip. So I want us to slow down and I want us to get in to the real story of Elimelech and Naomi and her sons. Because this is really a story about Naomi. And we need to see her suffering. Because right off the bat we read 
And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab. Now, to an Old Testament reader, when they saw a Bethlehem of Judah, this is, uh, this is a Bethlehemite. This is, um, this is a, one of God's people. I mean, that's what the writer, and we don't know who the writer is, is telling us right off the bat. These are God's people. And look what happens to God's people. They suffer and they suffer hard. Let's look at the, the suffering. First of all, they suffer cultural isolation. Naomi and Elimelech are godly, but they live in a time when the judges ruled. And if you know anything about Old Testament history, you know from like Judges 21-25 that, that the period of the judges was the time when everyone did right in their own eyes. In other words, it wasn't cool to follow God. It wasn't cool to be righteous. It wasn't cool to pray to God. It wasn't cool to live a life that was consecrated to Him. It was cool to do what was right in your own eyes, to make up your own rules, to live any way that you want to live. Because why? Because you deserve to be happy. Sound familiar? Those were the days of Elimelech and Naomi. There's nothing like living in the church seeking to be righteous, seeking to be faithful when nobody else in the church wants to be. You see, Naomi and Elimelech were marginalized. The very ones that should be supporting them, the very ones that should be encouraging them and following them and their faithfulness to God were marginalizing them. Have you ever experienced that? I know we all have. When I moved back to Memphis and um, told those in my circles that I, I came back to Memphis to plant a multi-ethnic, multi-class church, um, I got, I, I guess the reactions went from outright opposition and are you crazy to, um, to kind of indifference. Um, you know, I, I heard comments like, man, that'll never work. Uh, two, ah, yeah. All right. That's why you came back to Memphis, huh? I felt in a way marginalized. And it was lonely. Because I, whereas I knew God had called me to do this, I knew I couldn't say this is going to work. Because I have read God's Word and I've lived as a child of God for a long time and I know that life doesn't always work out. I knew that God could be calling me here to be the first one to die on the hill <laughs> and to prove all of the doubters right. And so I felt isolated in my marginalization when I talked to my African American brothers and sisters in Christ and and I've asked the question, man, what do you need from me? What do you need from your white brothers and sisters in times of, of racial tension in our country? When, when stuff like Ferguson comes up or Char what do you need? Across the board, what I hear is, is just empathy. Just, just show me you care. I'm not expecting you to understand it. You're not black. You don't have my experience. It would be weird if you acted like you totally understood it. But can you at least just act like you care and that my suffering and my pain is, is, is okay? They're saying if you marginalize me, then it's just going to make it worse. You're going to make my suffering worse. 
Naomi and Limelech were marginalized. They're waiting on God when no one else will. Are you there today? Are you single? About half of the church is single. Are you single and, and you're trying to be sexually pure and your friends are looking at you like, Really? Really? Are you in a tough job and you feel like God has called you to that tough job and, and maybe you're not making any money and, and you've got this education from this grand school and your parents are looking at you like you're crazy for teaching in a public school in Memphis, Tennessee? You're not making anything of yourself? You feel marginalized? Are you an African American in a, a multi-ethnic church and some, your family and your friends are saying, what in the world? Why are you going to that church? I mean, come on, they don't get us. They don't. Are, are you white in a multi-ethnic church and, 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 and you get, you feel sometimes looks from your, your African American brothers and sisters like you just don't understand and you feel content. Do you feel marginalized? I mean, all of us feel marginalized. Because we live in a fallen world. That's where Naomi and Elimelech are. They could be somewhere else, but they're there, seeking to be faithful. And what's their reward? There was a famine in the land. They're doing right. <laughs> they're, they're following God being marginalized for following God because everybody else is doing what is right in their own eyes and what, how does God reward them with a famine? I can't even fathom what that is like. I, 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 can, I, the, I can't think of anything worse than being a father and being threatened by the reality of having to watch my wife and, and two sons or, two, or my children starve to death. I can't relate to that. I don't understand that. I mean, we freak out when, you know, there's a sleet storm predicted in Memphis, and, you know, we clear the run to the store. We can't think of six hours without milk and bread. There was a famine in the land. It was so bad, they took off from Moab. <laughs> they took off from Moab. I've never been to Moab. Have you ever moved from where you lived your whole life, gone to a foreign place? Nobody has to do anything to you to make you feel alone. I've done it. No one has to say anything. No one has to be mean to you. You just go to a foreign land and you feel isolated immediately by simply being there. To make matters worse, Moab were the enemies of God's people. These, these folks worshipped uh, the, the god uh, Chemosh who um, demanded child sacrifices. These were the descendants of Lot when he slept with his daughters and, and these are their children. They are enemies. They hate each other. And yet they go to Moab. They were enemies of God's people. For God's people, Israelites, to move to uh, Moab would be like African Americans moving to the Delta. Uh, not many do that willingly. Oh, let's go back to the land of cotton. Yeah, don't think so. It's exactly what's going on here. There is no good memory. There is nothing positive about going to Moab. 
But listen to this. The Moabites had food. Think about that for a minute. The enemies of God's people had food, but God's people did not have food. Do you think that should kind of stir up a crisis of faith? The first thing that comes to my mind is Psalm 73. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They increase in riches. You see, that's the danger of living in the world. When your enemies are doing better than you. When those that, that, that have lived with no regard for God and even worship other gods are doing better than you, there's a tendency to be bitter toward God. There's a tendency to say, to, to shake our fist, to point our finger and say, uh, 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 that's not how you're supposed to treat us. There's a tendency to want to bring God down and make Him serve us, not us serve Him. And then the church, the curse was really just getting started because Elimelech dies. A woman without her husband, especially in a foreign land, is nothing. Culturally nothing. You know, culture tells us how we are to feel about ourselves. Culture tells us when to feel bad about ourselves. I mean, how do we know? You know, I was with somebody the other day and I heard this woman say, look at her hair. And I thought, what's wrong with her hair? But obviously this other woman was didn't have the in hairstyle or something. I don't know. You know, look at what she's wearing. Can you imagine what he does for a living? Did you know? It's all cultural. It's not sinful stuff. It's cultural stuff. And so in, in, in Naomi's culture, this is what she would hear. Look at that widow. She's nothing. You see, it's so easy. When we, when we show these cultural prejudices towards others, it, it eliminates any need and uh, any uh, obligation on our part to have to do anything or have to love them. Look at them. Naomi's going to be starving. She's alone with her two children. And the culture can just glide by. Why? Because she's a widow. She doesn't count. She's nothing. Then her sons marry Moabite women. (laughs) Uh, Folks, since Genesis 3, interracial marriage has never been good in the eyes of culture. And what stands out to me is the fact that Naomi had an incredible relationship with uh, Ruth and Orpah. So much so, as we're going to see next week, it's so hard not to fast forward. It's so hard to pack the car and to stay right here. Because, man, I want to give you a bunch of good news. It's coming. But... What we see is that Naomi didn't tolerate Ruth and Orpah, but when she tells them to go back to their people because she felt like it would be a death knell for them to follow her to Bethlehem, they break down in tears because they love her so much. And the only thing that I can think is that Naomi is a Genesis 12 kind of woman. Say, what in the world is a Genesis 12 kind of woman? I hadn't heard anybody say that. The covenant promises of God to Abraham 
In you, the whole world will be blessed. You see, God's people didn't listen to that promise. You know, that was kind of one they skipped over. No, okay, God, your covenant with us is you bless us all the time so we can enjoy the blessing. No, the very nature and heart of the covenant was this. I bless you so that you can bless others. You will be a blessing to the world. Naomi somehow gets that. Because she welcomes the Moabite women into her family. She embraces the interracial marriage. Because Naomi is a Genesis 12 kind of woman. She is a godly woman and she understands that this is what God is doing in the world. Unbelievable. Way before her time. Well, Ruth and Orpah cannot have children. And then the sons die. Paul Miller, who wrote a book on the book of Ruth, said this. He said, Naomi's losses would be staggering for any culture. But in the ancient Near East, for a mother to lose not only her husband, but also her sons, was the epitome of suffering. A leading management consultant posed this hypothetical situation to American men. Here it is. Men, your mother, your wife, and your daughter are all in a sinking boat, and you can rescue only one of them. Who do you rescue? 60% of American men would leave their mother adrift. Sorry, moms. There you go. Um, The consultant then posed the same question to Saudi men, and um, and every one of them said they would rescue their mother. Why? In the traditional cultures of the Near East, mothers have no identity outside the home. The daughters can marry and leave while their sons remain, forging a powerful mother-son bond. Their sons are their life. Naomi has lost her life. She has entered into a living death. Where we see a sharp line between death and life, the Hebrews saw a gradation. Living outside of Israel, the promised land, is already a partial death. Now with the death of her husband and two sons, Naomi's life is functionally over. It no longer has meaning or purpose. If you have experienced deep, sustained suffering, then you know Naomi's frame of mind. Death would be a relief. You might not commit suicide, but your life but if your life ended, you wouldn't care. Friends, that's where Naomi is. And you're all like, really? We came to church for this? Remember, we're packing the car, we're getting the trunk full. Here's the point. Here's what the book of Ruth is going to teach us right from the beginning. It's going to, it's going to challenge, I think, one of the strongest themes of, of, of heresy in our church today. And here it is. The book of Ruth teaches us this. Christianity doesn't work. Christianity doesn't work. You say, okay, give me some good news. Dear friends, do you know that that's what our hearts want out of Christianity? We want Jesus to be a pill that we take to change the circumstances of our lives. And he does not promise to do that. 
We want him to be uh, plastic surgery that can just come in and, and, and move around some things or maybe remodel the house, get rid of the Formica countertops, bring in the granite. We want, okay, we want him to come in and, and make things better circumstantially in our lives. And Jesus says, in this life you will have many troubles. But, here's the thing. He also says, I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. Here is what we can learn from Naomi and later Ruth. We must not go to God to get anything other than God. And there are very few of us in this room right here and right now doing just that. Do you know what God promises us? He promises us Himself. Do you know why He does that? Because to satisfy us with the things of the world, to satisfy us with a life of ease, to satisfy us with with, with a world with no troubles and no trials would be to give us something less than what can satisfy. And the only thing that can satisfy us is Jesus. The only thing that can satisfy us is a living relationship with Him. And dear friends, He is enough. The very purpose of everything God is doing in your life right now. I guarantee you there are a bunch of people in here saying, what is God doing in my life? Here it is. I can tell you, this is what God is doing in your life right now. He is trying to convince you and show you that He is enough. I've told you this before, and I promise you, I'm I'm not just trumping this up for some type of emotional deal. I'm just telling you a reality. The most clarity I've had in my life to this point was when I was standing in front of my burned-out house, having lost everything of material substance. And there are fire trucks, and I, I feel that, I smell that in this moment, man. I mean, it was chaos around me. And I'm looking at my house... And I got a smile on my face because this was the thought. I've lost everything, but I've lost nothing. Because I have God. He beca- it was like my relationship with Him felt more tangible and real in that moment than it ever has before or after. It was like God was there with me, holding me, saying, You don't need anything else. Is that not powerful? And that's what God is trying to get through your head this morning. You don't need anything else. And we don't believe that. Oh, we need that. We need that husband. We need that wife. We need those children. We need, we need that house. We need that new job. We need, we need, we need, we need. We don't need anything but Jesus. And that is what, what the writer of Ruth is trying to help us see. You see, Ruth is a Job figure. Naomi is a Job figure. Everything's taken from her. She has nothing, but she has the God of Israel. And that's all she needs. And it's all you need. And then the second and final point. Is this. In the midst of a troubled world, we've got to learn to lament. We have got to learn to lament. We've got to learn to feel. And I know what time it is, but I'm going to, I've got to get to this. I don't know that I've said anything more significant than what I'm about to say in a long time. 
church, I don't know if it's American Christianity. I don't know if it's, um, um, you know, a John Wayne kind of Christianity. I, I don't know what it is, but all I know is this. The church has told us and the world has told us that it's wrong to feel and it's wrong to have emotions and we don't need to be carried along by emotion. When Rachel and I were pregnant, unwed, at 18 years of age, there were some voices speaking into my life that affirmed the shamefulness of what we'd done, and that was right. But either how it was stated or how I received it, doesn't really matter how it happened, something turned in me, and, and I didn't just see a shameful act. What I got from that whole experience was, I'm a shameful person. And therefore, I don't ever have a right to feel upset. I don't ever have a right to talk about bad stuff that's going on in my life. I don't ever have a right to confront people and, you know, because who am I? I mean, I'm just not, I'm just a shameful person. A couple months ago, three months ago, um, Huge light went off. God freed me in a massive way uh, through a dear man, counselor, friend. Um, And what it's shown me is that for about 30 years, I was locked up emotionally. 30 years locked up emotionally. Unwilling to really go there emotionally. Um, Just thinking, man, you just work. You just pour yourself into work. You just put. You just get it done. And to be honest with you, it's because of that that I've achieved or done a lot of what I've done in life. And that's I praise God. He can use our sin. He can redeem our sin. He can take bad stuff we do and make it glorious stuff. That's all for His glory. I don't understand it. But what I, why I'm sharing this with you this morning is for this. I think that's where we are, especially as men, especially as white men, especially as white Presbyterian men. You know, that whole thing of the frozen chosen, um, there's something to it. Just work, just, just get it done. I just don't think I was alone in that for these past 30 years. What I see that we do as men a lot of times is we hide behind sarcasm, snarky comments, humor toughness to deflect the need to really feel or give sway to emotion. Somewhere down the line, we were made to not feel, to not show emotion, and therefore we have a generation of emotionally retarded men. We don't understand why we can't control our anger at times. We don't understand why we can't control our lust at times. We don't understand why we overwork or why we have addictions or why we pour ourselves into hobby. We don't understand why we have so many broken relationships and we feel so isolated and we struggle with depression and there's a general sense of skepticism or lack of hope. We don't understand why we don't have passion for life or passion for those around us anymore. It's because we are emotionally retarded. Here's the thing. God has made us emotional beings. Not only emotional beings, intellectually and emotionally. And yet we are emotional beings. One of the 66 books of the Bible is named Lamentations. 
Go read it. It's a bunch of emotions. (laughs) It's God teaching us how to lament. It's God teaching us how to connect our emotional state with the fallenness and brokenness of the world. Turn, if you will, to Micah chapter 1, if you have your Bibles. In Micah chapter 1, um, Micah is, uh, the prophet is bringing um, condemnation upon the people of God because they are wallowing in their riches and showing no regard for justice issues of the world. And and listen to what uh, is written in Micah 8. For this reason I will lament and wail. When was the last time you wailed? I will go stripped and naked. I will make lamentation like the jackals and mourning like the ostriches. For her wound is uncurable. He's crying over the condition of the church of God's people. It has come to Judah. It has reached to the gate of my people to Jerusalem. Tell it not in Gath. Weep not at all in Bethlehem. Roll yourselves in the dust. Pass on your way, inhabitants of Shafir. In nakedness and shame, the inhabitants of Zanan. Do not come out. Do you see it? Come with God. Read the psalmist. Come with God with your tears. Weep and well before Him because your sins are many. Read Psalm 51 and see David. He is emotionally engaged with his sin in his repentance. He is weeping tears. He's asking God to heal the broken bones of his body and his soul. Dear friends, the reason you sit in worship and you can't even be emotionally moved is not because you're spiritually mature, but because you're spiritually retarded. And I'm not saying that you have to... I'm not... Just take it for what I just said. Just take it for what I just said. The people of God through the centuries have used their bodies. They've used their voices. They beat their breasts because sin is that bad and the curse is that bad. What happened to Naomi is that bad. There is cause for lamentation. There is cause for tears. There is cause to be weeping over what went down in Charleston. There is cause for what's going on in our city to weep and to wail and to strip yourself naked in your house. (laughs) Do you see what I'm saying? Because listen, an emotionless life with Jesus is no life with Jesus. An emotionless relationship with Jesus is no relationship with Jesus. My wife got dressed last night for, and I'm glad she's not here because I'm about to embarrass the stew, probably out of my parents, and, but I'm going to say it. She got dressed last night for a wedding. And dang, she looked good. And I walked in the bedroom and I made her feel good. I told her how she made me feel. I kissed her neck. And I said, I'm not going to tell you what I said. I said some things that only a husband... (laughs) That only a husband should say in his bedroom. Because, wow, because an emotionless relationship with your wife is no relationship. And an emotionless relationship with God is no relationship. Peter Cesaro wrote a book entitled The Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. That'd be a good place to start. P. 
Pete Cesarer. He had a crisis in his marriage. After nine years into a church plant, his wife told him that she was going to find another church. She was fed up with him and said, I can't take it anymore. And this is what he said. He said, Jesus had penetrated my heart only superficially, even though I'd been a Christian for almost 20 years. Dear friends, Jesus felt, and he felt intensely. My beautiful, I call my granddaughter Juicy Fruit. Can you see why? Doesn't she look like a little Juicy Fruit? She can do no wrong. I'll end with this. Jesus was filled with joy, Luke 10. Jesus shed tears, Luke 19. He grieved, Luke, or Luke 14. He was angry, righteously angry, Mark 3. Sadness came over him, Matthew 26. He felt sorrow, Luke 7. He showed astonishment and wonder, Mark 6. He felt distress, Mark 3. Dear friends, He created an outlet, and it's called worship. And it doesn't just happen in this room. It should be happening in your life. We get excited when the Grizzlies win a playoff game. Man, I wear jerseys. I, you know, the Bass Pro opens. I deck out in camo, and I go... We get emotionally excited about everything in the world but God. And we got to flip-flop that. Because Jesus has... Do you hear what we sang today? Just go back and look at the words that we sang today. We sang, I will rise. Do you, do you have any clue what you sang this morning? If you die this moment, if somebody walks in this room and kills us all, he can't kill us, we will live. We will be more alive. We will be with Jesus. Is that your hope? Then get excited about it. Show the world the excitement that you have. It is legitimate to feel excited that your sins are forgiven, that your shame is washed away. It is legitimately real and and, and encouraged, if not commanded, to get excited about the hope of heaven, the fact that this wicked world is going to be made new one day. That poverty is going to be washed away. That reconciliation will happen between us and God and each other. That there will be a world in which there will be no more mourning or crying or pain. It is not just legitimate. It should be expected that God's people get excited emotionally. So how do we get there? We look at our lives and we feel the wounds that we have. You want to see some change in your life in terms of reconciliation? Feel what happened in Charleston. Put yourself at that table at a Bible study. Put yourself there and feel that. A guy who sits there for an hour watching, waiting to kill you because you're black, because he wants to incite racial turmoil in this country. Feel that. Get mad about that. And then say, my God reigns over that. Dear friends, look at the pain. Amen. Amen. Feel the pain of what's happened to you in your life. Go back. Not so you can live there, 
but so you can get through there and begin to live for God and love God and love other people. Amen? Amen. Lord Jesus, thank you for the hope of the gospel. Thank you that you made us emotional beings, you made us physical beings, intellectual beings. Because of that, we can't fathom the pain of Naomi. We can't fathom how she felt. But, oh God, we know that you could. And we know the rest of the story and you redeemed her. Because you're a God that redeems broken people. You're a God that comforts those who are mourning. You're a God that cheers up those who are sad. You're a God that satisfies the unsatisfied. So, Father, I pray this morning that we would weep and wail. We would feel the hurts and pains of our lives. We would feel the hurts and pains of those around us. And that we would come to you. And we would say, come, Lord Jesus, come. And that that would be the very desire of our hearts. That we would live for heaven and not this earth. And we would live like a people that really do live for heaven and not this earth. Oh, God, make us different. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.